Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, thanks, Google. And thanks to a mega panel of guests today who are joining me on Sunday afternoon for this session to help break down why the Google Megaplex pulled a reverse ferret overnight last Thursday, delaying its plans for two years to end third-party cookie user tracking on its Chrome browser, which controls about 60% of all web browsing. So what actually happened? Why did Google do it? And what next for brands, marketers, and the entire digital advertising supply chain? Cookie bombing could be back with vengeance, which is not such a good thing, and we'll get to that. But certainly the equity markets responded quickly after Google's announcement last week, pushing the stock prices for open web ad tech companies like the Trade Desk up by circa 16%. Pubmatic and Critio jumped 10%. And we're already seeing early signals from publishers that CPMs are rising. We'll also dive into that. With me today is most of MI3's cookie crew, who early last year warned industry that it was entirely overlooking the profound implications Google's cull of third-party cookies would have on literally everyone. Those podcasts and features are MI3's most read and downloaded since we launched. So they're back for this one to offer some, if not spiritual guidance and a sanity check, then certainly sound strategic and practical advice on what the hell is going to happen next. Now, just a heads up, this session was turned around very quickly, which means the post-recording edit hasn't had the attention we would usually apply to our podcast, so apologies for that. So joining me today is Susie Cardwell, General Manager Data and Ad Products at News Corp, Nick Barnett, Independent Digital and Strategy Advisor and Westpac's former Director of Digital and Media Technology, Chris Brinkworth, Industry Advisor on Cross-Channel Measurement, and a former digital media buyer, Vaughan Chandler, former executive manager at Qantas Loyalty and Qantas Red Planet, and a co-founder of Crystal Box. And finally, Josh Sliding, head of data and digital audience at 10 Viacom CBS. Now, this is a massive lineup, so wish me well in keeping these data geeks under control. But welcome to you all, and thanks for joining on day two of Sydney's new pandemic lockdown. Let's get to it. Chris Brinkworth, to you first. It's a very, very simple question. What just happened with Google? So Google have pushed back uh, this 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 Chrome deprecation. So for, for intents and purposes, that means a few things. Uh, everyone heard about how the web um, will no longer be open and the walled gardens are closing in. Uh, this means pretty much that the web will stay open a little bit longer. Uh, it means that publishers can still make money uh, through uh, third-party targeting, third-party ad systems, etc. And um, I'm wondering if we'll discuss this a little bit later with some of the publishers on the call, but I've heard that CPMs are already going up uh, a little bit more since that, that news as well. It also means that advertisers, specifically obviously marketers listening to this call right now, can still use that third party targeting um, at a kind of one on one level uh, programmatically. Uh, and they can plan a little bit deeper now than they could previously wondering what would happen post that 2022 deadline. Uh, so essentially, what was the, the world was the world the sky was supposed to fall in, uh, wasn't it? And it it didn't. Uh, Vaughan Chandler, welcome. What what? Why did this happen? Why did Google essentially reverse its position? What do you think were the were the, were the factors that led to this? Because it was you know it was sudden and overnight. Yeah, I think uh, looking at some of the commentary coming out of Google, it appears that 
a couple of pressure points, uh, maybe were part of driving this decision. First being uh, some regulatory pressure from the UK and, and second being uh, some of the commercial implications that this would have on uh, some publishers. Now, whether those are the full reasons why Google made this change, you know, I'm sure we'd all love to know that, but uh, um, I think the key thing that we think about is, you know, regardless of why Google made this change, you know, we now have a bit more time as an industry to understand and plan better about how we think we should respond to this and not wait for one you know, large player to design the solution for us as an industry. But when you talk about, though, Vaughan, when you talk about some regulatory pressure and some commercial implications, what do, they, what do you think that could involve? What does that look like? Yeah, I think it's clearly um, you know, a lot, lot more of the privacy regulators are starting to look into constructs that are drawn out of this um, and to, to ask questions, I suppose, of Google as to whether they're comfortable that this is a, a solution that, Fits the needs and uh, fits the needs of the consumer expectations in their market. So we've seen a lot of questions coming out around the flock approach, and you know, is that really a privacy solution that uh, consumers are wanting to buy into, or regulators are wanting to endorse? So I'd say that that's probably a driver that they're probably getting some wind that some regulators aren't yet comfortable that this solution would be a, uh, an appropriate solution. And, and similarly, um, you know, and probably others can talk to this better than I can, but uh, some of the commercial pressures on publishers that rely on uh, third-party audiences as the commercial approach uh, uh, can also be part of how Google is deciding to, to delay this change. So just to be clear for the audience that may not be deep in the weeds on this, um, Flocks, which has been uh, is essentially a new way of in which you target Google's users through segments rather than individual. Just to clarify, Vaughan, what Flocks is, because that has been a subject of quite some debate as to whether people like it, don't like it, want it, want it to land, or it's it's something otherwise. So Flox is what? Yeah, Flox is effectively a, a, a micro-aggregation of uh, segments created by Google uh, where, where advertisers can ask Google to target certain micro-segments created by their, their, those combinations, understanding that Google has of those customers. So it's still... It's still unclear yet as to is that really a privacy solution? Is that that really does draw on more, more and more that Google becomes the uh, arbiter of who gets targeted and for what reason, and and draws a lot of the uh, the control of the targeting systems into Google's core garden. And I think there's a lot of questions that the privacy is starting to ask whether that's the right solution or not. Right. And Susie Carball and Josh Sliding have got views on that. We'll come to that. But Chris Brinkworth, in your view, why did Google uh, capitulate? Um, look, I, I, I think they, they, they had a bit of an uphill battle. So there's a couple of things I've seen just from reading, reading the various industry pundits and influencers. Uh, the first key thing was to get universal buy-in from the W3C, so that the World Wide Web Consortium, on, on their proposal for Flux, you had to get buy-in from the other browsers who, who obviously sit on, sit on the board for, for, for the World Wide Consortium as well. So... If you look at look at so just to be clear, the worldwide consortium you're talking about here, Chris, to be clear, is is a is a a, a body that sets the standards or uh, for browsers. That is absolutely right. So pretty much anything you see on the open web, anything you see about how browsers work, etc., um, the W3C set those standards. Right. So so you're 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 going to have a challenge if you're if you're Google and you're trying to push something through um, that is based on obviously you and your browser when. The other browsers sit on the board for the for the W3C. 
So, okay. so that's where they didn't get the acceptance there. Obviously, so Safari, Mozilla, etc. Um, there were various articles that came out from Mozilla uh, and others, uh, including the um, uh, Efficient Frontier organization as well, about how, how this actually couldn't be as private as everyone assumes. And there could be ways to break down the differential privacy attached to the flocks as well. So, okay. so there were those various challenges. Now, the other challenges that, that, that came up are uh, if you look at the competitive uh, competitive regulations over in the UK, they've actually requested that Google put in writing uh, in a in a legal document how they will actually act as well. So they can't change their mind once they go out and say, "This is how we will use data, um, and this is how it will be going forward." They won't be able to change their minds either. So, so there's just been a lot of pushback on it. So that's a step too far for Google to be locked into that at this stage. You think by committing in writing. I'm guessing that's exactly correct. Yeah, that's for, right. for the UK. But if you if you were to look at Europe as a whole, if you look at the fact that you've got majority of Europe uh, is under GDPR and how those regulations at the moment, Flock doesn't quite adhere to those regulations. And that's a concern. And that's why Flock's not yet running in Europe. And if they can't find a way to make it work in Europe, that's a, that's a big amount of money that they're, they're losing out on. So, so that might be why they've actually gone ahead and said, let's push this deadline back. Uh, there's also, at the same time, um, if, if, if you look at, if you look at from a uh, US perspective, the, the CCPA and CCRA, CPRA, sorry, from a, from a US perspective, that is actually another really big step into regards to how, how data should be collected and used as well. That, that's the Californian privacy equivalent, right? That, that's correct. Now, um, again, from what I'm seeing, outside of Google, everyone is going to have to, to adhere to new rules on consent and how that data is collected and used as well. And you, you don't actually have Google as your kind of buffer. A lot of publishers at the moment have, have Google as a buffer, so they just rely on Google. And if Google do the right thing, they make money from it. Uh, so, but, but in, in those new regulations in the US, it looks like actually some of those, so those regulations that are coming out are going to leave a lot of publishers and tech companies themselves open to open to kind of legal conversations if they don't adhere to the new rules over there. Um, well, you've just spoken about publishers, uh, Chris, and to Susie Carball at News Corp. Um, uh, you're in, you're kind of in the spotlight on this, I guess. And, and, and but what now? You know, everyone's been had a mad scramble to to adjust uh, to what they thought was going to be the end of third party cookies on Chrome early next year. That's changed. Do you think uh, how much change do you think is going to happen uh, now as a result of this? Does it slow it down, or is something different happens? Well, look, I mean, I think the, the, the first the first point to make is that, you know, Google have changed the timeline on this, but they haven't changed the fact that um, third-party cookies are going away. Um, and while they have extended out effectively, you know, by 18 months, 18 months really isn't um, a very long period of time. So I guess that, you know, that our point of view is that, um, you know, marketers still need to be concentrating on moving away from any dependence that they have in their digital marketing on third-party cookies. And the way that we've been talking about marketers, talking about that to marketers over the last sort of uh, six to 12 months um, is that, you know, they really need to start to be working with um, organisations and media owners that have large um, scaled pools of first-party data you know, that have a connection with, a, a direct connection um, with their audience 
um, which means that you know organizations like ourselves don't rely on third-party cookies and, and third-party data um, so you know we first party data boss exactly right we first party data is boss um, we you know we are we, you know we are lucky um, at News Corp in that we've got you know access to you know large you know a, a large pool of Australians who are coming to our um, sites every month and they're coming to us to consume um, you know information and content across a whole range of, of kind of verticals um, and and that allows us and organizations like us and 10 and nine and seven uh, and various other you know uh, media owners mi3 mi3 absolutely um, you know, to use first-party data collection methods to really understand um, our audience's um, interests um, and, in some cases, their intent. And so, you know, the way that we've been speaking to marketers, um, as I say, over the last six to 12 months is to say, you know, we really want to try and work with you on um, that first-party data asset and how we can, um, how we can uh, get a really clear view of your target audiences um, and use our data to help you um, to help you connect to them, um, and, and and to help you drive a you know drive towards a specific outcome. You know, if I think about if I think about a, a you know a, a market an FMCG marketer like Marcel, for example, you know we um, we work with them to allow them to to target um, groups of people directly who are searching for soup and stew recipes. Um, you know, right now on tape, it's a stock producer. It makes stock, right? Their stock, exactly right. They make stock, and you know, they can they can target those audiences directly with their stock message. Um, and so the that that um, you know that that requirement for marketers to start to think about their first party data strategies and who they want to work with on their first party data strategies um, doesn't doesn't change. Um, and that you know the 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 time frame is a, is a little longer, um, but now is the time to start really um, testing and trialing those strategies. Uh, Vaughan, is there a risk here that companies will take their foot off the gas in this transition to from third party to first party data? In you know as a result of this change. Yeah, there is Paul, and um, certainly most companies we've been working with and, and talking to. Uh, have, have really approached this and only mobilized out of necessity or, or fear rather than out of desire. And so, um, you know, it's quite likely that with this additional time that's sort of been given, that, that some of these companies will take their foot off the pedal. And, and I think that will be a, well, I know that'll be a bad idea, particularly if we do that at scale. Um, you know, we, we've seen um, that, I suppose on two fronts, it, it does take time as an organization, as a marketing organization, to build up a capability to understand how to build up your own audience and then to engage your audience across the publisher network in a first party environment. And that learning curve is something that, you know, I think the companies that are further down that learning curve um, will, will, will benefit from that. And it's, it's easy to do that when you've got your current marketing practices still available to you than when you have them taken away from you. So I think in the first, being able to learn whilst you've still got the security blanket will help companies uh, but the second and more important, I think, is that all the evidence suggests that working as an advertiser with a first-party audience is a more valuable um, you know, and certainly more robust way of marketing than relying on third-party audiences. So I think what we should be looking for is to drive the opportunity that is a, a, a revenue-creating and a customer engagement-creating opportunity, which is to work on a first-party basis with your audience 
and to learn how to work with the publisher sector in that way as well. So I really think that trying to flip this into a sense of companies pursuing this because it's a value opportunity rather than a necessity uh, is something that should happen across the industry. However, I fear that uh, a lot of companies will take the, their foot off the, off the pedal here. Faunas, there's some sectors that might be more more tempted to, to pause and hold than others. Is there is there a okay? We let's let's fast track this um this holiday. Yeah, certainly. I think the the sectors that are closer to consumer engagement in a digital sense already will be the ones that move fastest in this space. So you know, online retailing, um, you know, businesses that already have a reason to have a digital consent framework in place. Further away you get from that, you know, FMCGs will probably be further away. I think they will start to work more closely with the publishers, as Susie mentioned, that have a first-party audience they can rely on. But building up your own first-party consent when you don't have that consumer relationship, I think will make some companies find it harder to build up that um, understanding about how to proceed in this way. So, so Josh Sliding, um, Chris has mentioned it. There's a bit of talk around uh, that, you know, already, even since Friday, that, you know, we've seen stock prices rise of some of the ad tech companies in the open web. CPMs might also be on the rise as a result of this pause of third party. What's your take on that? Are you seeing that? And, and your broader sense on uh, what happens next from, a, from a, I guess, a, a linear and digital broadcast position? Well, um, we always want our prices to go up. If anything, we're trying to defend them from going down. You know, I think that's pretty good business practice. Um, I think it's a changing of the guard, right? There's been um, all these changes really just come back to people are focused a lot more on the quality of the data that they're paying for. And they're paying a lot more attention to where it's coming from. Is it from a good and reliable source? The kind of use cases Susie was articulating, that's something you can really, you can vouch for. You know, that's a, that's a trusted audience and, and it's well curated and managed. It's collected, it's produced very carefully. If you contrast that against the way typically third-party data was in the past, you had someone visited a website once in 12 months and therefore they fell into a segment and they just never happened to leave that segment for the rest of their lives. Now, we managed to make a lot of money off those type of audiences for a long time. That stuff's changing. There's natural decline on the CPMs like that, but I think it comes more from the fact that you've got a much higher prevalence of addressable audiences that are curated by publishers who are investing carefully in those audiences. There's a lot more premium partners and you're not matching to data sources like cookies that are obviously compromised and, and forever changing. And the life, the lifespan of those audiences is, you know, it, it, it's, it's quite limited. It can be quite limited. So I think there's a, there's much stronger verification. People's confidence in certain premium audiences is going up. So the premium audiences, although they might be smaller, depending on the publisher, um, you can attach a premium, but you can not just attach a premium, you can you can defend that premium. And I think that's what you're seeing is that the more verified, higher quality, better trusted data source has a higher value. The, the, the legacy data sources that were just collected, which is really the issue of what we're talking about when you're tracking things across the open web, um, a lot of those data sources, it's kind of hard to justify. Whereas a business trying to move away from those too, because it's not as strong as someone who lived in Red Planet from Vaughn's Vaughn's life, if you're a flybys customer, or something like that. So the pre, the growth of premium partners is definitely has a higher currency. Um, we don't necessarily value the, the third party pieces too, even from a marketing standpoint. So is this delay to cookies, Josh? Is it good, bad, or indifferent for your business in the short term? For us, look, we're a premium video business for the most part, and the bulk of our audience doesn't live on a website, so it's actually not as big an impact as you'll see in. 
a commerce provider or something like that. I think the small to medium business market are the ones who struggle the most. Obviously, publishers who are very web-based and, and rely on advertising from those business models, um, from external data sources and parties, like they will be much more affected. We have different ways to, log, to, to, to monetize our assets. You get people to log in. We create a value exchange. Our advertisers are investing in being integrated into the content. And we can create much, we've got a much different kind of array of advertising products. So we could, I don't think we'll be as affected, but we will still struggle, I guess, in, in some parts to, to, to demonstrate the measurement and effectiveness of certain things when these things go away. Right. So I, w- I want to get to Nick Barnett in a, sec- Barnett in a second, but um, uh, Susie, uh, pricing pressure either way, is there is there anything that's happened in, the, in literally in the last few days or do you expect what to happen in the coming weeks and months on pricing? Oh, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I haven't checked uh, since Friday to see what's happened with uh, to see what's happened with prices. But um, I think that, you know, our, um, you know, our view is very much, uh, you know, along the lines of what Josh, Josh, you has just articulated, which is that um, premium environments and first party premium sources um, of data um, drive um, better outcomes for advertisers. Um, and therefore, uh, we think that you know a small price premium um, uh, is is justified. Um, I think that you know there's, there's there's fantastic recent research that's come out of Think Premium Digital, which Paul you've um, you've highlighted in previous podcasts, um, which has you know which is actually um, very clearly demonstrated that you know those premium environments and and uh, first party uh, data together. Um, can drive more um, uh, more effective outcomes for advertisers. You know, particularly when we're talking about um, creating a brand effect and creating a consideration effect. You know, the kind of headline around all of that research is that um, premium environments, are, you know, are, are two times more effective um, than run of the internet um, and then platform environments. And so. Um, you know, our view is that the, you know, the small premium that might be paid on price is more than justified by the outcome that it delivers. Well, you've heard, uh, dear audience, the certainly the, the strong publisher sell about the good news from this um, from this cookie stuff. I want to ask Nick, Nick, Nick Barnett. Uh, Nick, you're advising lots of brands and companies uh, in and around this, this space. Uh, what's your initial impression on whether they'll take the foot off the gas or, 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 or put it down or hold? Uh, and then we'll get to a couple other things around, you know, perhaps the return of some fascinating practices like cookie cookie bombing. But what's your initial hunch on what happened, well, how the market will react to this? Marketers will react with their with their transition strategies. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Paul. Well, I, I think there's been a terrific reaction all round. We've had a great sense of urgency that's been built up over the last 12 months. Uh, it's really quite ironic when you think about it. I mean, marketers have, have literally had to go through this pandemic and adjust to everything. And then all of a sudden, there's this whole cookie apocalypse that's coming their way. They're getting thrown these these words like turtle doves. Uh, privacy sandboxes, flocks, and they've got to understand what that means. Go back to their board of directors or heads of or executive teams and got to sell this in and, and got to ask for money and resources to prepare for it. So, you know, I, I really do take my hat off. But the problem is now that sense of urgency almost goes out the window because everyone's got to go back to their boards and say, well, sorry, what we thought was an imminent threat that we needed to get on top of, um, we've actually got nearly two more years now. So uh, what, what we were talking about before, you've got to take it with a grain of salt. So it's, it's kind of hard 
uh, for marketers not to almost feel a little bit like they've been wearing their tinfoil hats. And I would kind of say, you know, to reassure them, you're doing a great job. And, and certainly what I'm seeing is that people are starting to understand that the, these tactics like cookie bombing are, are really not a true form of marketing. There, there is more of a correlation effect than causation. And you sort of go back to what's at the heart of this and what, why are we even here talking about these changes and privacy? And it's because, and if you go to, to chat with someone, if you're having dinner, not at the moment, obviously, just due to the, the lockdown rules. but Virtual dinner, Nick. A virtual dinner, thank yes. you. You, you you can explain this very, very quickly to someone, which is, have you ever been having a conversation with someone? You mention, ah, oh, look, I really want to buy a new barbecue. And then 10 minutes later, or maybe the next day, all of a sudden, th these ads are following you all over the internet, you know, advertising this new barbecue. And you're like, how did I know? And everyone reacts to that, and everyone is totally sick of that. And so you go back to the mechanics of how that is facilitated, and it is using a technique called cookie bobbing, which is where marketers and advertisers uh, effectively tap into all this third-party data to blast you with ads wherever you go and to find out what your interests are at a user level, uh, you know, and, and that's everything from the kinds of products you're looking for, but also some pretty explicit uh, personal details about, you know, your potentially your age or demographics. Um, and what that means is, is that when you serve that many ads, uh, you, you start to have this correlation effect with your sales. So particularly for large advertisers, um, you serve so many ads that they start to correlate with your sales. But then the reports are actually telling you that they've potentially driven these sales, regardless of whether people have actually even seen them. They not have, may not have actually even been viewed. So for me, I really actually don't blame marketers if they start to go back to hyper-targeting. I would explicitly advise everyone, stay away from it because it is a very dangerous practice that has a very questionable ROI attached to it. Uh, and, and you look at this and you sort of go, it's really like performance enhancing drugs for, for marketers, right? And you go, well, what if you told bodybuilders that they had a, another two years to start, you know, keep taking performance enhancing drugs before they're banned from competitions, right? Do you, do you think they're going to go clean right away? No, of course they're not. I, I, they're probably going to try and get another win, get some more gains, uh, get some more trophies and enjoy their artificial muscle mass before they get rid of them down the track. That's one for the later base, right? Um, and, uh, you know, from a commercial perspective, th there's probably a very clear reason um, that, that hyper-targeting and cookie bombing probably will come back and, and, and make a nasty resurgence over the next year. And that's for one reason, one reason only, and that's because no one is measuring properly. There are so many digital attribution models that are still so prevalent, and that's predominantly last touch, but it's even things like multi-touch attribution, which allows advertisers to run these activities and then attribute sales back to these channels, regardless of whether they've even been seen or not, right? So the analogy I always use is, imagine I stood outside of a retail store with a bunch of flyers in my pocket as people walked in and out of the store and bought stuff. At the end of the day, I can actually, using the attribution methodology, the digital attribution methodology, I can attribute a percentage of those sales back to those flyers in my pocket. 
it's utterly ridiculous. So for me, the only way to do away with shoddy tactics like cookie bombing and the use of uh, third-party data uh, is to upgrade measurement models away from these piles of garbage like Last Touch Digital Attribution to the point where I've actually um, I've got an ebook that I'm looking to release next week that just explains this in more details for, for advertisers. I'd probably say, you know, do you want to win at fake short-term uh, artificial targets in this financial year? Or do you want to have a statistically credible measurement model that your board buys into? And that would be what I'd be looking at as a, as a marketer and questioning all of this, these third-party data sources and certainly any platforms that are using them unnecessarily. So what should happen, uh, we'll get into more detail in a minute, Nick, but you know, you're, you're on a roll here. So in terms of avoiding those tactics, which you probably feel much in the, many in the market won't in the short term, it's too tempting. But what is it just to continue to avoid all those digital tactics, avoid those sort of those, those faux digital uh, measurement tactics, I should say, and do what? I, I think it really starts... Uh, with go you've got to go on a journey here. This is uh, this is not something that I think you can switch over to overnight. Uh, and so for me, it's about um, looking at the overall approach, uh, looking at all of the data sources within a business, and combining those um, to have what uh, you know a lot of organisations like the IAB would call unified measurement. Um, so actually, digital analytics does become a very, very valuable part of that. But I think in the first instance, what a lot of companies need to do now, especially those who are starting to adopt the agile frameworks and cross-functional working groups, is to take a cross-section of people from within the business, ranging from marketers and digital uh, specialists right through to even um, you know, some finance representatives and maybe with time compliance, and bring together all of those sources of data, you know, Analytics may even be multi, um, uh, sorry, media mix models, um, but then customer research, contact center logs and calls and customer insights. And as a, we'll call it a council, is to review all of those data sets together and maybe even look at things like tests um, and optimizations. And then collectively to agree on what the best use of your shareholders' capital, your shareholders' very precious capital, that is probably one of the largest expenditures for your business, and then to determine where that spend should go. And then, you know, as part of that, I'd say that you would look to empower some of the tactical staff, and whether that's media buyers or optimization specialists, you would empower them to make short-term decisions and optimization decisions, but certainly, those decisions about where your money is spent would be handled by that council and that cross-functional working group. And for me, that takes away that, that interest in the sort of cookie bombing and the fast, you know, digital only results that don't even think about the fact that you might have a contact center or a distribution network or brokers and that kind of thing, and actually looks at it more holistically. And I guarantee if your cookie bombing or third party data based activities make it through that, then they are absolutely worth it. Chris Brinkworth, your take on, on, on measurement and what, what uh, Nick talks about, this nasty resurgence of, of perhaps uh, dodgy tactics that, or, or, or tactics that are fueled by faux measurement and, 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 and attribution. What's your take on where on the measurements side of things? I think, um, I think this whole kind of cookie deprecation thing has actually, in a way, helped, helped the industry uh, a little bit there so there's been so much focus on 
what are we going to do? What are we going to replace? Um, yes, on the Google stuff, but we've not really touched on Apple at all um, as well over the, over the past year, what's happened there. And it's been such a drastic change in the Apple ecosystem when it comes to how you can target, how you can track, how you can measure within the Apple environment. So on iOS and um, within Safari on desktop, et cetera. And now, and now apps, emails, and a whole lot of other things. So I think it's worth touching just, just quickly there on, um, there's, I'm unsure if, if, if Google are, are absolute geniuses um, huh. or, or well, they are. They're absolute geniuses, if I'm going to be honest. Because if, <laughs> if you look at what if you look at what they've done, the if you were to open up Chrome, if you were to open, let's look at this um, past couple of weeks. If you if you open up Chrome today, and and you try to turn off any ad tracking, any data collection whatsoever within Chrome browser, um, as a user, as a user, right? There, there's no way to block adverts within Chrome unless you install a third party tool. So there's no default way within within Google's products to block third-party tracking. Now there is a way. Um, everyone will talk about incognito mode. Um, so you can load up that that incognito kind of guy in the dark glasses and hat. And you can up, open up that tab, but there's no default way that that is always the tab that opens up, unless you do again some pretty clever kind of code script within within Chrome. So. So even when you do put in incognito mode on, all you're doing is making sure no cookies are stored on your device. So you're making sure that, that, that your, your partner cannot see what you've been searching for on a shared device. But Google themselves, they still see and collect everything. And, and that's the machine that they're living on. Now, if you were to look at Apple uh, and Mozilla, their model hasn't been advertising. So they've been very happy to, to have ad blocking, targeting, et cetera, turned off as a default because they don't have to feed that, that ad tech and, and ad monster. So, so what they've done here, though, if you look at it, Apple themselves, um, everyone's started to find workarounds for Apple now. So uh, there are ways you can target quite, quite efficiently within an Apple environment now. So there's various tools out there that, that I've been looking at that are very, very clever at doing that. So there's ways that publishers could make money from Apple. Uh, there's ways advertisers can successfully measure what's happening within Apple environments. In the meantime, Google themselves have been trying to push this flock stuff through and, and they've just not come up with a solution yet. But they've come up with this story about how they're helping all the advertisers and publishers by pushing this back. So they suddenly look great. But in the meantime, they're still collecting all of this data. And that includes from publishers who are using their products, right? It includes the news that people are reading, that the search items people are making when they go to, was it mydeal.com.au my or catch.com.au? It's just incredible the data that, that, that Google as a machine are collecting. So, so look, that, that's my thought there. So, but when it comes to measurement, mm -hmm. I think I think I think Nick's absolutely right. I think, and and I I used to, and I'm sorry if you're listening to this, but I, I used to, I used to not like Mark Ritson's views at all. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, but 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 he he's brought me around the stuff I've read from him and what I've listened to. I'm actually I'm actually very much on on Mark's side these days. And, and from, a, from a measurement perspective, with everything, everything now becoming digital, and, and when Josh was mentioning earlier on about how they're focused on, obviously, the, uh, the video side, uh, but if you look at how programmatic outdoor now is becoming more commonplace, but not just programmatic outdoor, any type of outdoor that runs, there's, there's data there that we can all kind of put into the media mix modeling and to see how it all gets, how it all impacts everything. 
So mm. I think my 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 views on measurement are very simple. They're, and look, I don't want to give the I don't want to give the game away because uh, I think I'm giving you the exclusive call. I'm I'm launching my agency in three weeks, but Whoa. there's some there's certain areas that that I know that I'm going to focus on, and they are very much around clean room technology. And and if you look at any advertiser at the moment and publishers, they're very much focused on what clean room technology can I use to ensure. I'm measuring things correctly from a first party data perspective, but also from a second party data perspective. So, so that's that that's point number one. But the other point is there's going to be a really big scramble for the ownership of the linkage of identity. I think the linkage of identity is still really up in the air about how we're going to all do that um, as an industry. I don't know what you mean, though. Linkage to identity, uh, maybe we come back to, to, to circle. In fact, let's come back and circle on that because I want to get to, it's a nice segue, some of the stuff you've been talking about uh, into what happens here in terms of the risk to consumer and user trust uh, from uh, what happens in the next 18 months. So so Vaughan and, and to Vaughan and Nick, really, uh, what's your take on uh, on whether there is any potential downside here to people uh, uh, people's trust in and around what goes on with their data. Um, so Vaughan first. Yeah, I think anytime you've got a, a period of uncertainty, a period of regulation that's evolving, there's always consumer uh, concern that's drawn out of this. I think what we need to have is a, a greater degree of certainty that the consumers understand the situation that they're in. Um, if, and that at the moment, it's hard to tell as a consumer, this is the protections you have. This is what companies are doing and what they aren't doing because it's so in such a state of flux. So I think there's a, a number of things that have to happen before um, before we can have a real, real clarity around that. First of all, is just simply the privacy regulatory environment, and that that's part of this uh, uncertainty. And then the second is organisations that have consent with consumers, and particularly the large organisations like the Googles and Facebooks, um, having a clear position and not not evolving position as well. So. I think what we've seen is that once a consumer understands the exchange of value that they're entering into to provide the, their consent, and if they're buying into that and if they feel like they've got control uh, and can change that consent, then, then they're usually fine and they're happy to engage in a way that says, here's my, here's my information now, you know, as long as I, I buy into the exchange. Um, but it just at the moment, the industry isn't giving consumers and privacy and regulation isn't giving consumers enough certainty around this is the situation that they are in. And I think that's that's probably the greatest trust uh, issue. So I think the sooner we can get through these kind of changes and the sooner we can provide clarity, uh, we'll be able to move on and consumers will, will accept that exchange of value, but, but it's just hard to articulate it for them now. Susie Cardwell. Yeah, I just, I guess I just wanted to clarify um, when we're talking about the industry um, and the industry not providing consumers with clarity on um, how the data is being used and, um, and consent. I think that, uh, you know, from a media's own, owner's point of view, and Joshua, I think you probably agree, um, we absolutely put um, consumer consent um, at the heart of everything that we do, and and consumer consent and consumer to be fair, Susie, though everyone says that, even Google says that, and Facebook say that, right? Well, I mean, I think though that I could point you very directly to um, to a, a page on every single one of our sites that clearly lays that out and clearly gives the um, consumer the ability to opt out of targeted advertising, and every time they sign up to a service with us. Um, they are asked to opt in um, to be to be contacted and to be targeted. Um, I, I'm not sure 
we could necessarily say that about Google and Facebook. So uh, I think that I think we want to make the distinction here um, between different um, actors in the in, in this industry in this space. And I think you know media owners um, like ourselves, like Ten uh, and the others in this uh, in this uh, market and MI3, of course, Paul. Um, <laughs> do do provide uh, that clarity and that choice. I want to ask Nick um, Nick Barnett though. So you know, what is consent? You know, is it, is it probably a good basis question? Susie's made a distinction there. But you, what is uh, you know this 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 risk to consumer trust? Nick, do you think it's uh, it will it will increase as a result of this delay in cookies, or is it going to be more of the same? And then we might get to this epic battle between um, you know Apple and Google around privacy because it's a it's a wedge from Apple at the moment to the rest of the entire industry, really. I think. But um, firstly, on the threat to consumer trust, Nick, uh, for online privacy. So I think Apple has really set the benchmark here. And if, if we actually look at the IDFA uh, opt-in rates um, since their fourteen point five. Um, you know, rollout, we can see that the vast majority of consumers do not want to be tracked, uh, especially using third party uh, data. So, um, you know, what we've got to take from that is that anywhere between sort of 70 and 90 percent of the everyday customer does not want you to use third party data to target them. Okay, so, uh, you know, in in my perspective, that's a, a decent sign that uh, moving away from third-party data is no longer just about uh, sustainability. It's just because customers don't want it. They do. It's a, it's a preference. It's as good as getting very, very explicit research telling you to stop it. However, I, I would say this is not a threat to Google. This is going to chip away. We're also seeing things like you know ad blockers or Brave as a, as a browser becoming more popular. But it's not a threat. And the reason I say that is look at Google's profitability. I mean, they've had over 30% growth in their revenue in their most recent Q1 uh, uh, release of results versus the same time last year. So they're up 30%. Their operating margin is also up uh, to 30%. Okay. So <laughs> they have a it's a stunning business performance. I mean, and their, their cloud revenue as well. Let's not forget the GCP here. Their cloud re- uh, revenue was almost uh, double what it was same time last year. And it's now uh, approximately 10% of their ad revenue. So they are doing very, very well. On top of that, they've got approximately $135 billion in cash, right? Or cash equivalents. Just let that sink in for a second. Um, you know, given that the, the awareness and even something like think of GDPR that was launched in 2018, um, you know, you can see they've gone from strength to strength. So I cannot see that this is a threat. Uh, I do think trust will continue to erode. But, you know, if I, if I was Google and I am a bit of a Google fanboy here, I would be looking probably at the marketers trust right now and saying we've got to be very, very careful that we actually up our game when it comes to communication and uh, change management, because, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there's been all these changes and we've had this rocket rocket ship saying we've got to get this done. And then all of a sudden, no, nah, you've got two years. So I, I think actually I'd be f- focusing on the first one. Um, we know that probably they're going to come out with a, a customer first or privacy centric means of tracking. Um, but I think this is probably where Apple's done very, very well is that they have stuck to the privacy as their, their guiding principle. And uh, I think probably Google is, is going to have to take a, a leaf out of their book at some point. 
Well, to Susie Carbell, I mean, uh, Nick's mentioned there a little bit about how uh, the platforms aren't uh, aren't hurting uh, as a result of some of these changes, and certainly the last year with COVID and so forth, they're, they're doing actually better, and the numbers speak for themselves. Um, you do, as, as as would not surprise too many, uh, that you do warn though that too much reliance on a couple of platforms can do uh, can have a little bit of damage here right across the board from segmenting, targeting, pricing, the whole lot. Give us your sense uh, on, and even you know what happens to. Uh, uh, alternative ID solutions, identity solutions for users. So I guess give us your sense on what's next, what were the watchouts for you for, for publishers and brands and around this off the basis of, off the back of what Nick's been talking about? Yeah, so I guess uh, going to going to the second one first, so, so um, alternative identity resolution solutions, we kind of touched on this very, um, very briefly, but I think that, I think this is an, um, this is an area that is, um, you know, that, that has started to evolve um, in response to, uh, you know, to, to the death of a third-party cookie. And, and this is a, um, these are, you know, a series of, of kind of technology uh, responses um, that are, uh, are looking at ways that marketers and, uh, and publishers um, can, between them, um, bring their first-party data sets together um, and uh, and uh, match them effectively, uh, and start to um, and start to work with them. And so, there are a number of different identity resolution providers that have started to emerge. Um, there's a whole lot that are emerging over in the US. Um, there's a. It's there's pretty a, confusing at the moment, though, for any market. It's, it's confusing for me, and I'm talking to smart people like you every day. It, it I get re- confused. It is really, it is really confusing. But I mean, I think the the core, the core of what these identity uh, resolution um, uh, solutions are looking to do is, as I say, allow um, a marketer um, with their uh, consumer data um, to start to match it to um, other sources of first party data. Um, that you know, publishers like ourselves and and uh, and others uh, have um, to allow those marketers to start to target those audiences, um, you know, in our environments. There are various different um, there are various different ways um, and various different methodologies that have been developed um, to do that. But and those are going to continue to evolve um, over the next eighteen months. Um, but they're going to be a really important. Um, part in providing the solution to you know third party uh, third party cookie alternatives, um, and I think that you know we're only going to see those continue to evolve. And I would um, encourage marketers who aren't already looking at um, identity solutions um, to to start to do so. Let me ask quickly, Nick. Nick, is are marketers looking at, at, at these ID solutions now? Or is it top? Where does it sit on their agenda versus everything else that's going on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would probably say, though, that the management of first-party data, i.e., if I'm, a, I'm an advertiser, I need to get my, my, own, um, uh, my own data and my own customer data in order. And I think uh, moving away from platforms like you know, DMPs, data management platforms, to a CDP is incredibly difficult, right? Now, and uh, you know, if if uh, if Google, the, the you know the shining example of of uh, sort of like digital uh, north stars is is seeing a two year delay in their plans, 
well, I'm sure everyone else is going to be probably struggling quite a lot as well. So I, I think Susie's raised some excellent points there. And um, I, what's what's really quite difficult and what, what I believe is now starting to become more of a prevalent concern for advertisers is data lineage and uh, governance and and having well catalogued data sets that actually if you do share and you do match data sets with a, a first, second, third party that you have control and governance and processes in place of what happens to that data and as it's processed and where it's stored uh, and what the security uh, you know protocols are behind that. So I think uh, it's it, you know what Susie's talking about there is is absolutely where they're heading. I think it's just taking everyone a little bit longer than they had anticipated. Josh, you've got a couple of thoughts. <clears throat> yes, uh, I think just listening to all the stuff, there's. We've also got to watch that we don't fall in love with our own kind of gospel in that some of these solutions are very good for enterprise clients with sophisticated tools, big teams, processes, and a big ad spend. And, you know, they've got the ability to chop things, change things, move from a DMP to a CDB, all these things are fancy buzzwords. But the largest part of the ad spending market is not a sophisticated kind of enterprise person. They're a small to medium business or an entrepreneur or something like that. You know, that's where a lot of the lion's share of Google's revenue is coming from that very the, the smaller businesses in the world. So there are increasing solutions available, but I don't think that the answer to a lot of this stuff actually lies in the technology. I think it comes back to some of the principles we've been talking about. It talks about like moving away from some of the opaque practices, removing some of the barriers. If anything, the walls just keep going up and up and up. But not every advertiser is going to be able to harness their own underlying assets and stitch them together and you know use them for targeting or measurement. Um, in publisher sites and we need to do a better job I think as an industry to help bridge that gap we're solving for the lion's share I mean of the big spending part of town where they've got sophisticated tools they've got these big tech stacks they spend lots with us they've got the ability to tap into these solutions but we're not necessarily making the solution set accessible for the wider advertising market and we really need to think about that it's a it's a great point Um, Vaughan Chandler you had some thoughts yeah, I agree that the concept that Susie and, and Josh and Nick have all put that moving towards a first-party um, approach as an advertiser and then linking that into the publisher uh, more directly is is a is the valid approach towards going there. I think you know Josh's point around it's, it's you know, a good solution for large companies is is good is is absolutely right. But I think one of the things we need to recognise is that it doesn't necessarily need a tech, technology solution is required to be to be able to do first-party advertising as a as a marketer. And I think one of the, the key constraints is actually that we're not seeing uh, that there's really it's hard inside an organisation that doesn't have the knowledge around what is this space, so that the intellectual property inside marketers is not prevalent enough inside businesses to understand how to operate. And, and the second challenge is actually that it's also hard to make decisions quickly. It's a, it's a highly evolving space that, that spans across marketing, IT, privacy, legal. And so it falls between the cracks of different departments to make decisions in this space. And we're actually not seeing organisations understand how to make decisions. So I think as much as do you need a CDP or, a, you know, it's actually around how do you as an organisation, as a marketing organisation, evolve really rapidly when the when the when the industry is changing so quickly when it when your business isn't structured in a way that's going to allow you to make decisions in that way so i think yeah. I, I think there's actually the, the key thing for us is to understand to have more capabilities in industry and how we do this as advertisers 
to work with the publisher solutions that are coming on board. It's a great point, and it's the irony, I hear it weekly, uh, anecdotes uh, inside client organisations, despite the great discussion and, uh, and debates we've had for a number of years around data, data sophistication is still actually waning or lacking in, in a lot of organisations. They don't have their infrastructure and the capabilities actually up to scratch, which is, you know, after such a long talk around it, it's, 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 quite, it's quite surprising to me from the outside. Susie, I just want to get back to one thing with you, um, which, you, you know, you raise an interesting point around uh, the downside or the risks to um, using something like Flock segmentations in a Google in, in a Google context around segment basically advertisers all relying on the same uh, same segmentation with a dominant platform, which means where does differentiation come from and how do you break out? Other than interestingly that it might be come down to the messaging, the creative, which you know we won't get to in this conversation. But give us that. Give us your view on that risks to. Um, a, a market moving uh, en masse to, to, to a Google-based segmentation like, like Flocks, cohorts like Flocks? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's two, I think there's two um, kind of major risks there for marketers. The, the, the first one is, is the one that you've already um, highlighted is, is in the difficulty in starting to differentiate yourself. So the, the, the concept of, of Flocks, which, which has been put on hold by Google and is going to be revisited, but... Um, the concept of, of flocks was um, that they were going to be creating uh, basically cohorts, um, groups of uh, groups of, uh, of people and devices that could be targeted, you know, based on the activity that, that Google sees they're undertaking around the web. Those cohorts um, were going to be, you know, um, were going to be standardised and, uh, and were effectively going to be kind of one size fits all for, for marketers. There, 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 was, there was going to be some ability to, there was going to be some ability to, uh, you know, to, to, to do some sort of micro-targeting uh, within those cohorts, but effectively those cohorts were going to be uh, pretty much the same for everyone. And, and you know, the, the risk there for marketers is that they would be forced to be using the, uh, the same, uh, the set, targeting the same audiences, the exact same audiences that their um, that their competitors were targeting, and I think that you know, as 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 media organisations, we would you know we've kind of taken the opposite approach, and and we we um, you know we have. Uh, uh, we've created environments in which we can slice and dice our um, audience data in kind of an infinite number of ways and make our responses to our advertisers very bespoke um, based on the kinds of outcomes that they're trying to drive. Um, and so, you know, we, we've literally got thousands and thousands of, of segments um, that we can, can combine in uh, a whole lot of different ways and that we can, um, uh, you know, and that we can provide to our advertisers, as I say, based specifically on the outcomes that they're trying to provide. So, you know, I think the first risk there was that, you know, they that marketers be forced into that one-size-fits-all kind of solution. I think the second risk um, is, is the one that Nick has kind of already uh, spoken about, which is around measurement and attribution and the fact that, you know, the platforms mark their own homework uh, and there's very little... Uh, opportunity for marketers to undertake any sort of independent verification of the um, of the results that they are purporting to have driven. So I think that um, you know that 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 risk of being driven um, deeply into those environments um, means that you know you, you, you're going to have to you're going to have to trust what they say. 
We're going to wrap this up very shortly in case the listeners wondering whether this, this Sunday afternoon podcast is going to go through to Monday morning. It won't. But I want to get to Nick finally. Uh, Nick, your, your final words for, for what now for brands and marketers and your letter, you, your letter to the CMO as you drafted last year. And then we'll get a final wrap up from, from each of the panelists before we, um, before we finally wrap up. But uh, Nick, uh, what now for brands and marketers and your CMO letter? Uh, give it to us in a, in, a, in, a, in a nutshell what you're thinking. Awesome. Thanks, Paul. Well, there's three things. Number one, hold the line. Number two, focus on measurement. And number three is update your CMO. Hold the line. You, you just got to continue phasing out your use of third-party cookies, particularly as we're going into the new financial year as well. Nothing's changed. We've got more time on our side. We've got more time to prepare. And I really do applaud anyone who's been working on this already. And it's definitely not wasted effort. Keep going. And remember to focus on those five key areas, which is targeting and retargeting, prospects, lookalikes, or first-party audiences. Second is personalization. Third, suppression of your wasted spend. Impressions that you don't need to serve might be you know, pre-conversions, it might be existing customers. Fourth, analytics. And the last one is risk and compliance. Focus on those five key areas as your guiding principles. Apple's IDFA opt-in rates have also shown us that anywhere between 70 and 90% of your customers or your prospects do not want you using third-party data to follow them. So that should be a good enough reason to stop using it regardless of what Google's doing. So stop it now and don't wait for 2023, especially given what Chris mentioned about onshore privacy regulations coming down the line. Number two, use this extra time for rebuilding your measurement. How will you know what you're currently rebuilding is effective? The the truth is that without a a proper measurement model, you will never really know with a a high enough level of confidence. And the, the truth is that the digital marketing attribution models out there are garbage now. They are garbage. And the process of preparing for third-party cook- cookies has shone a massive light on how misleading and inaccurate they are. So I want to be clear, digital attribution won't break in 2022 or 2023. It's already broken. And just as a nice little plug, uh, plug I've also got my ebook, which I'll put out into my network next week, which will help with that process. Lastly, number three, update your CMO and executives. And I've just got a a couple of little lines here. Dear CMO and executives, thank you for your ongoing support of our initiatives to balance competitive marketing ROI with evolving privacy standards. Over the past year, there have been countless examples in the industry that have validated our decision to update our tech, data, and buying platforms, but none more than Apple's new marketing opt-in rates showing that as much as 90% of consumers are rejecting companies tracking them with third-party data. Favorably, Google has recently announced that we, as part of the industry, now have extra time to continue these preparations. As such, we would like to seek your endorsement for us to use this time to develop a marketing-leading marketing measurement model that will ensure that we invest our shareholders' precious capital into activities that have statistically quantifiable sales impacts. 
Well, that'll be on that'll be online too to go with that because that'll be lifted and copied. I'd imagine, Nick, a little bit. I will want to make one. I do want to make one thing before we get a wrap up from everyone, all the panelists about the watchouts for the next twelve months and their views. Um, is that it's somewhat ironical we're hearing this pushback on last click attribution in my studies in my little uh, attempt to find out where the hell did last click attribution come from? Who's to blame for it? Um, I'm sorry to say, but be careful. It sounds like it all, all roads point to Google in 2005 with the advent of Google Analytics. They created the problem. Now they're trying to solve a problem they created. Everyone jumped into it. Be careful what you believe from the platforms. There's my little bit of non-inside uh, uh, advice. Now let's go to uh, Chris Brinkworth for the final wrap-up from everyone. Uh, Chris, your action, your your watchouts for the market in the next sort of six to 12 months um, in, in a nutshell. What, what is it? What is it? Look, in a nutshell, I think you need to definitely be be having your war chest invested in in areas that that will combat the fact that Google will eventually um, stop the third party cookies. It's, it's it's not a it's not a total cancellation. It's just a it's just a, a reprieve for now. Um, those areas, I would say, that people may not be focusing on at the moment, including publishers, um, including advertisers uh, and agencies, obviously, is SEO. I think organic search will be one of the most important things that people are forgetting at the moment. How are publishers going to get more, more, more viewers to their, their website, more subscriptions, et cetera, if no one can find them? Um, if you have these private search engines that are coming out, um, then how are you going to actually get to the top of those search engines and so on? So I think content from a search engine optimization perspective is very important that people should be thinking about. From a measurement perspective, uh, I, met, I, t- I touched on clean rooms earlier on. I think it's important to, to, under, to for everyone to understand that at the moment, Facebook have a clean room, Amazon have a clean room, Google have a clean room. Uh, now, Facebook's isn't officially launched, but it's called Advanced Analytics, if you reach out to them. Google's is called Ads Data Hub. Amazon's is called Amazon uh, Marketing Cloud. Now, the challenge there is if you're working within a clean room, um, long story short, a clean room is very much about keeping identities hidden and private. Uh, for you to be able to kind of match with cohorts, et cetera. But if you're working within a Google-only environment, then how do you work across the reach and frequency across other publishers there? So, so, so that's the one thing that I would also consider is how do you work on a build-your-own clean room strategy? If only there was an agency coming up that focused in that area. And I would also Wait finally... No, no. So, but I would also, I think the final thing there is is very much, I really, I really like what Susie was saying, um, where she mentioned about um, how they've obviously got all their terms and conditions and, and consent covered. I think consent is a very, very important thing to understand. If you don't understand what consent means and the difference between consent and um, governance, then you're going to come up with all sorts of trouble. So consent, there is implied consent there is explicit consent there's consent where you've hidden it seven seven pages down in a terms of condition somewhere that, that someone might find so i think really understanding what consent means and, and working from a privacy by design uh perspective will, will, will reap the benefits in the future so i think that's the other final thing i'd put in there is about really understanding what consent is yeah, good points. Vaughan Chandler, uh, watch out from your perspective for the next six to 12 months from a brand perspective and then publishers if you've got it. Uh, so I think from a brand perspective, uh, absolutely don't take your foot off the off the pedal. Um, you know, don't revert back to the old way of operating. That's not the right way to, not the right way to go. Um, 
The, in terms of what you do need to do, given that, you know, increase the knowledge, particularly know how you're going to work as an organisation to make quick decisions. This will be an area that will continue to be dynamic for the next five years. So making sure you can make rapid decisions across your whole organisation, knowing how that looks um, is, is going to be key to you being able to, to compete. Um, third piece would be develop a clear consent framework and value exchange with your consumer to obtain that consent. Um, you know, totally agree with what Chris just said around don't rely on your consent coming from third party, don't rely on a, on a um, and don't rely on the measurement frameworks that the wall, wall gardens provide for you. Create your own measurement framework that works across them. And to do that, you're going to need to create your own first party uh, identity capability and to work with the, with the premium publishers in that way, using your first party and their first party together. All of these things can be done fairly quickly. I'd say start operating and then you will learn how to, what, what greater investment needs you need after those first learnings. So there's, it's not too hard to start down that path. The key is to start and evolve rather than try and solve the end solution in totality in the first wave. Got it. Josh Sliding, your, your, your final words of wisdom. I will keep it short because I don't disagree with much of what's been said. But if I was to offer anything maybe a bit more pragmatic, it would be along the lines of testing is just for brands, media agencies, buyers in general, um, to be quite brave with their testing and, and to have the confidence and courage to pull things out of media plans. I think there's, there's, there's a long period of time where people have been trading. You can go back and study all of your plans. You can study your performance. You can know what worked, you know, the environments, you know, what drove certain results, you know, certain metrics, but ultimately your biggest measures are, did a customer come? Did they transact or engage me in some capacity? You can measure those things. So if you feel confident enough, uh, and can get away from the immediacy of the short-term sales pressure that we now find ourselves in, especially in digital. Um, and you can start to really pull things out of your existing media plan. You can always put them back in if you notice that they know that's the beauty of digital. It's pretty quick, right? You can always reinsert certain things, but just be brave in, in working out what works for you because every single business is going to be very, very different. Yeah, great points. Susie Carwell. Um, I think pretty simply, first-party data is king. And I think that um, marketers now have got um, an, an additional 18 months to work out their first-party data strategies. And there's probably two parts to that. First is um, looking at how they can um, start to um, scale and collate their own uh, consumer first-party data. Uh, and then look at the organisations who also have scaled large um, first-party uh, sources of data uh, and start to work with those organisations. And to Josh's point, um, you know, start testing and learning. Start working with some of the big um, publishers um, on their, uh, their first-party data and how that can, um, that, how that can help you. Um, and then uh, start to look at um, the potential to match, you know, your uh, consumer data with those publishers to start to really um, drive some specific outcomes. Outcomes. Great points. Now, Nick, I've got one final question for you. We've heard from publishers. We've heard from the publishers saying there's a good case here. Do you think there is uh, in the next 12, 12 to eighteen months that publishers, media owners, actually have a big opportunity here to make some ground or hold the ground uh, versus the platforms on this? Um, where's your sense on whether the the power or the money shifting? Probably more than anything, the money. Um, what's your take, Nick, on on publishers versus platforms? 
Well, I, uh, in a nutshell, Paul, I think we've got a selection here of publishers and uh, some great options for advertisers. That means that I, I would say to be very diverse and not be locking into one or a small set of, uh, of platforms or, or publishers. There is some great choice out there for advertisers. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's been a pleasure speaking with everyone today and to see just how much they actually care about the quality of data and the quality of the marketing activity. So I think that's only a promising thing and it offers more choice for advertisers. Final word, Chris Brinkworth, you talk about grey hat publishers. What the hell do you mean there? Um, it was a term like I get to hear a lot of buzzwords because all I do is troll LinkedIn for for nerdy stuff. But but great gray hat gray hat publisher was a term that, that I heard the other day, which is around. This is not obviously Susie or Josh because they've just talked about how they're not. So, but gray hat publisher is someone that that, that is kind of skirting along the, the lines dangerously on how that data is being collected and the consent is being collected. So we've all heard of dark patterns where where you think you're going to. Um, you're going to unsubscribe some from something, but suddenly you've subscribed to four, four new things, as an example. Now, one, so that's what a great hat publisher is. A white hat publisher is obviously someone that's very, very focused on that kind of consent and doing everything above the line, sorry, above, above board. Um, I'll just use this as a final example, right? So um, uh, I may have started using Tinder recently, being, being recently single a while back, but um, <laughs> I, I got this notification from them that said, to, to make sure you don't match with any of your friends, upload your contact database to us and we will make sure mm. that you do not match. Now, I went through, obviously, several layers to try and find out what they would do with my data. And dark patterns being the design to make sure that the, the publisher gets what they want rather than the consumer. Um, I, I clicked through to their, their link that said, based on our terms and conditions, and it was another whole layer of benefits of why I should do this. And then I clicked again, it was another whole layer of benefits on why I should do this. So how many people would actually get right away through to, to whatever? So that's what I'm talking about, right? So in regards to, to a grey hat publisher versus a, a white hat publisher. Got it. Well, Susie Carwell, Nick Barnett, Chris Tinder Brinkworth, Vaughan Chandler, Josh Sliding, great to join, great for the conversation, enjoyed it. Uh, and we will loop back around, I guess, in the next couple of months because there will be an update. It's early. This is an early response to, to Google's um, position on cookies uh, last week. Uh, so thanks for joining and stay safe through the pandemic. Thank you. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.